1: Hello kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every Thursday we release these special episodes where we look back at content from our earlier years. Every other Thursday we feature just one classic story from the vaults. We ask that you keep the historical context in mind. Today in 2021, there's a different consciousness. We've always asked storytellers to speak in as unfiltered a way as possible and yet to tell their stories with as much compassion as possible. Even so, I'm sure the storytellers and the host might have worded some of what they said on these old episodes differently if they'd been recorded more recently. As always, the title of the whole series, Risk, is itself a content warning. This week, a story that D.W. Baldwin first shared on the podcast in December of 2019. Here he is now with a story we call In Kali's Shadow.
2: This story starts five years ago in an apartment in Woodinville. I'm laying in bed with my girlfriend, Kristen. We've been dating for about six months. Her apartment is filled with books on dressage and mechanical engineering because she's an aerospace engineer at a major aerospace manufacturer here in the Pacific Northwest. She likes fast cars with four cylinders and a turbo, and she's especially fond of Subarus and horses and dogs. But tonight we're laying in an off white bedroom staring up at the dark ceiling because we have just come back from the Tri Cities where we visited one of her friends who suffered a traumatic brain injury after falling off of her horse. And we're just laying there in silence because we know that this could happen to her. And she rolls over to me and says, DW, if this relationship progresses and we eventually get married and I fall off a horse, I need you to know that I've had three concussions and there's a significant risk that I could end up in a coma like she did. And if that's the case, I want you to pull the plug. I don't want to remain a vegetable and I don't want to wake up a different person from who I am. And I look her in the eyes and I nod because I grew up on a horse ranch and I understand the dangers and she smiles at me and says thank you love gives me a kiss rolls over and is asleep within five minutes just out and I'm sitting there watching her I listen to her breathing change slow down and eventually we get that and tells me that she's out what I don't tell her and what I've never told her is that every night after she goes to sleep I start experiencing a panic attack, a deep existential dread of existing and of mortality and the awareness that I'm going to die, everybody's going to die, the entire universe is going to fade out into nothing. I don't know why I'm getting these panic attacks because, frankly, my life is going great. I got out of a bad divorce, I've rebuilt my life, I've met this wonderful woman. Why are these panic attacks hitting me? They happen whenever I'm alone. They happen in the bathroom stall at work. And let me tell you, it's surreal to be sitting there flailing silently inside of a bathroom stall while trying to take a big dump in the fear that no one's going to hear you, but you can't stop. And at the same time, you're fighting the urge to just jump out of the door, just knock it right down, run out of the stall, pants around my ankles, and just start running down the street until either I have a heart attack or I find a magical, mystical door that opens up and exits me from this reality where everything dies. And it's been hitting and hitting, and I don't sleep at night. So this night, conscious of the weight of what happened at Tri-Cities with her friend, and with the weight of what she's just told me, I take up my phone and I start scrolling. And tonight, I decide, you know what, I'm just gonna punch in the exact details of what I'm experiencing. I've been to therapy, I've done pot, nothing's helping, and I'm just desperate, and I Google the exact search terms and it's the same 10 search items. Then I scroll down to the bottom of the page, and I realize that I've never hit page two on the Google search, and so I decide, why not? What do I got to lose? So I hit page two, and the second link from the top lists Everything that I've been experiencing And it's from a web page Listing the Ayurvedic teachings of ancient India And I go, well, why not Click it. it Turns out that According to the Vedic sages What I've been feeling and experiencing Is the touch of the goddess Kalima The Indian goddess of death Time and destruction And what this is, is the curse of Kalima It's this existential awareness That Dooms men and women who experience it to always be aware that mortality is like that. But it's also a blessing. The sages go on to say that if a man or a woman perseveres through it, they eventually emerge from this process, this dark night of the soul, with a new and vaster, deeper appreciation of life and spirituality. And I think there's my answer. There's hope. I can get through this. Weeks turn into months, months turn into years. Kristen goes from being a girlfriend to being a fiance, and in 2016 we decide to get married and we decide to get a house and I decide to publish a book and it's all happening at the exact same time. So there's lots of stress just piling on in our lives and Kristen is just buy the book, you know, engineering mind go, list everything, just check it off get it done, she's always driving everywhere I'm always in the passenger seat, that's how our relationship works, she's an excellent driver (laughs) but the stress takes a toll on her we get married October 1st, 2016 and she starts sinking into seasonal affective disorder we buy the house and it closes escrow on December 1st and we move in, but all of her boxes line the hallways and the floors she hasn't unpacked, she spends her evenings and weekends sitting in front of the TV watching episodes of Heartland and uh, playing with our dog. And I'm sitting here going, okay, she's stressed out, she's recovering, it's okay. March 2017, it's the first full sunny day of spring, and Chris comes back from a girl's weekend, and she's energized, and she's refreshed, and she shows up, and she says, DW, we're going to go back, and we're going to go ahead and trim those dogs' toenails, and then I'm going to give you the best fucking blowjob of your life. And I'm going, yes, let's do this. Let's go, let's get this done. So we head out to the back porch and I sit down in the chair and I grab the dog and I hold the dog and Kristen bends over at the waist to start trimming the dog's toenails. And after a moment, she straightens up and she's suddenly gone pale and (laughs) beads of sweater popping out on her forehead. And she says, I think... I just got the worst headache ever and then she starts to buckle and I immediately lunge out of the seat I've got the dog in the left hand and I wrap Kristen around my right hand but her whole body weight is crashing down in my arm and I'm sitting here staggering and the dog is running around like crazy trying to not to get trampled so I spin around and I dump Kristen into the chair and I shove the dog into the house and I look at her and she's heaving like she wants to throw up but she can't And she's mumbling, but I don't understand the words. And so I quickly run around to the front of the house and I scream for help. But it's the first sunny day of spring and no one in my entire development is home. Everybody left. And suddenly I realize if I don't get back there, she's going to aspirate. So I run right back to her and I bend her over just in time for her to vomit onto the concrete there on the back porch. And I pull her back up and I clear her mouth And I look at her and I say, Chris, love, can you follow my fingertips with your eyes? And I wave them in front of her face, but her eyes aren't tracking. And the word fast is screaming through my head, but I don't know why that word is there. And I'm sitting here wondering, why can't she move her right arm? And then I notice that the entire right side of her face is drooping down and she's mumbling and no words are coming out. And I finally remember I have a cell phone, so I grab my cell phone and I call 911. The emergency operator comes on and I say, I think my wife is having a stroke. The medics come and it's a blur of ambulance rides to the hospital, calls to family members and friends saying, can you please come watch my house? Can you please get my pet? Can you please meet me at the hospital? Doctors rushing in and saying we got to get her to a CAT scan, we got to get her on into an ambulance, we've got to send her to Seattle. Okay, i got to get her right back to the house because i got to pack an overnight bag because i got to go to Seattle. All this is happening, rapid fire. And I get to the house and I get the neurosurgeon calling me on the phone. He says, Mr. Baldwin, I'll make it very simple. I need to crack open your wife's skull to let the brain expand because there is a major bleed going on in her head. If you say no, she will die. If you say yes, she may die, but if she survives, we're buying her time. I don't think about it. I say yes. Days of horror turn into weeks of nightmare and turn into a month. The doctors have no answer. They have to wait until the brain stabilizes and Kristen stabilizes, and she's in a coma brought on by the stroke. We have no answers. We think, well, maybe it's her type 2 diabetes. Maybe it's her high blood pressure. We don't know. Second MRI comes, and there's a sad consultation with a somber neurologist who tells us that there's a bright spot in her brain, and it's been growing. It looks like a dandelion bloom, and they have to do a biopsy to be sure. But if it is what they think it is, it's a glio, a type of brain tumor, and they're terminal. There is no cure. There's no process. It felt like a sledgehammer to my soul when I heard that. Because we had only been married for six months at that point. The following day at work, I'm staring at the computer screen, but I can't think. And so I walk into the one place in the entire factory where I'm guaranteed to get some privacy and it's the men's locker room. It's this long narrow room shaped like an L and I sit down on this bench and I put my back up against this beige wall and I'm looking at these dark gray lockers under these fluorescent lights and the tears come to my eyes because I'm less than three months away from losing my home because I can't get to Kristen's accounts to help me make my mortgage. And now my wife is in a coma and is probably going to die from this brain tumor. And it is at this moment that I think of the curse of Kali Ma. And I think of Kali Ma. And I open my hands and I take a deep breath. And I say, Great Mother, Dark Mother, are you there? Can you hear me? You've touched me. And now I am coming to you to beg you. If it is my wife's time to die, can you please take her gently? But if she's going to live, can you please bring her back to me? And all I have to offer you are my tears. That is all I've got. The very next day, that morning, I get a phone call from the nurses at the subacute unit that Kristen's been put in. She's awake and she's responsive. So I get down to her room and I walk in. It's another off-white room. There's no decorations on the walls, just lots of respiration units and heart rate monitors and tubes connected into Chris. And I see her and she sees me and we make eye contact and I see her. And I know she's there. And I reach down and I take her left hand because that's the only hand she has any ability with. And I say, hello. And she mouths the words, hello, back to me. I ask her, do you remember the stroke? And she indicates no. Do you remember the last six months? She indicates no. Do you remember us getting married? She shakes her head no. Do you remember me? And she nods her head yes. I say, Chris, we got married, but there's something I have to tell you. You've got a tumor in your head and it's growing. In 10 days, the doctors are gonna come in and they're gonna take you to surgery and they're gonna do a biopsy. We need to know how quickly this tumor is growing and what it is, but it's terminal love. You're going to die probably within six months. And I watch my wife's face contort. And I watch the tears roll down on her face. And I'm standing there holding her hand, wishing I wasn't the one to say that. And then this realization hits me that when we say I do to each other, there's a part of the wedding vows we never say but are implicit and is sealed when we make those promise, is that we agree to be each other's loving executioner should the time come. And when the time came, I disregarded Kristen's wishes. I didn't pull the plug on her. Part of me still wishes even today that I had, because I would have spared her this horror. But if I had, if I had executed her, I would have destroyed her entire family. And that was ultimately a choice I couldn't make. So, being 41 years old, Chris still had neuroplasticity in her brain, and that meant that her brain would heal the damage from the stroke, even though it didn't, it meant that it would not be able to overcome the tumor. She eventually recovers enough to be able to use a wheelchair, and she moves to an adult nursing facility. And one day I come to visit her, and she's sitting there in her wheelchair staring at the beams of sunlight coming in through the blinds, and she turns around at me and she gives me this big smile. She says, Oh, And she points at her bed indicating I should go and sit there. So I do and I turn around and I watch her wheel her way through the sunlight at me with her left foot, her left hand outstretched to take mine. And I look her in the eyes and I take her hand and the moment that I do, the walls of my psyche fall away and I feel her love and how happy she is that I am her husband and being there and guiding her and supporting her through all of this and beneath that I feel this omnipotent, omnipresent ocean of love and divine being that connects us all and for this single sacred moment in the sunlight I am united with my wife and I have the strength to continue on a month and a half later the tumor has grown to slightly larger than a golf ball and it's pressing down on her brain stem, stilling her autonomic functions and killing her. And she's in her death rattles. I'm holding her in my arms and I'm singing to her so that she knows I'm there. And I sing Beautiful In My Eyes by Joshua Cadison Tour. And then I sing Par Avion by Mike and the Mechanics. Another day has passed me by And there's an island in the sun To see me through Another day in paradise But there's no reason, there's no rhyme Without you And halfway through the second song She exhales her last breath and dies. If there is a heaven, we can find it in that moment where love and empathy are everything that connect us. If there is a hell, it is when our loved ones leave us to continue on while we remain behind. And if there is any hope, it is that we labor here under the distant light of paradise, awaiting the day when we rejoin our loved ones